Please do join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Acts chapter 17. Before we begin in God's word, let's begin in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, as we just sang, would you send your spirit, Lord, unto us, that he may touch our eyes and enable us to see. Father, would you show us the truth concealed within your word and in your book, Lord. May we see the Lord, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want us to begin by asking, but not answering a few questions, Uh, fairly common questions that we've probably all heard, either questions that we've asked Ourselves are questions that we are asked. And here are the questions I'm thinking about. Why don't you read your Bible? Why don't you study the scriptures? I mean, who of us has it been on the receiving end of questions like that? Those are common questions. But I want to think about some maybe uncommon questions. Questions like this. Why do you read your Bible? Why do you study the scriptures? Now, to be sure, the why don't you questions are important. But it may be the case that the why do questions are equally, if not more important, because it addresses motive. Why do you Read the Bible? Why do you study the scriptures? Is it to gather information? Is it to win the family Bible trivial trivia game? Is it to impress people? Is it to prove that you're right and someone else is wrong? What's your motive? To spend time in God's word. Well, here we are in Acts chapter 17, and I believe our text that we're going to spend some time with is going to help us answer those uncommon but absolutely essential questions, questions of motive. You know, I'm, I cannot begin to, to tell you how encouraged I am that the Lord has led us to the book of Acts, because truly, it helps us look back at what Jesus has already done, and it helps us look forward to what Jesus is continuing to do now through his spirit in the church. It's so helpful for us going forward to look back at our history and to move forward in our mission, and today's text is is no exception. Um, I want us to just quickly remember some things about chapter 17. In In the first three verses, remember, Paul had a mission. He's in Macedonia. He's proclaiming Christ. He's got a method. He's proclaiming Christ from the scriptures. And he has one central message, the death 
and the resurrection of Jesus. And last week, when we took a look at verses 4 through 9 and upside down or right side up, we saw that there's always a response to the gospel. No one can be neutral. No one can be a Switzerland when it comes to the gospel. You've got to choose a side, as it were. And, and one side is, is to receive and to believe, and the other side is to reject and to disbelieve. And the, the gospel, of course, while it unites people around Jesus, of course, it also separates people. We saw last week about the rule of the mob. And we took a look at the, the characteristics of the mob that were, that were uh, going after Paul, trying to find him, dragged out his host, Jason. And as I mentioned, I'm pretty sure there's no biblical evidence for a mob in the name of Jesus, a Christian mob. There's just no biblical evidence that the way of Jesus here on earth is somehow through mobs. But there is mob rule in the heart of a Christian. Because we're not there yet. There's always a battle going on. That, that, are, are we going to put sin to death? Are we going to pursue righteousness? There's a mob rule, as it were, in our own hearts. And we battle that. But certainly, we have a champion, don't we? Who has the victory and continues to give the victory. I mean, that's what Paul is saying in Romans 8, 7, 8, and 9. But we also talked about another kind of rule, the rule of King Jesus, a benevolent dictatorship. You know, I used to be afraid of a dictatorship. I spent some time in Eastern Europe, and there were legacies of dictators, and I thought, man, that is not where I want to live. But you know what? Every Christian lives under the benevolent dictatorship of Jesus. He's the king. How wonderful is that? He subdues us. He rules and defends us. He restrains and conquers all his and our enemies. How great is that in a world gone crazy that we have King Jesus? And we saw last week that Jesus speaks of the kingdom, his kingdom via parables, word pictures to help us understand what's going on in the kingdom. And we saw Jesus speaking of citizens in his kingdom being those who are poor in spirit, who, are, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who mourn. And we also saw that in his kingdom under his rule there is, there is fruit that's born, fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. That's the kingdom life. You see, through the gospel, the upside down world is being turned right side up, one person at a time. And in a world that's still upside down because it's still a sinful and fallen world, as I mentioned a moment ago, joy has dawned. Join with me now as I read, beginning in verse 10 of Acts 17. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness 
examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So here's Paul now in Berea. And if you've looked at your Bibles lately, there is not a letter to the Bereans, right? It's one of those cities that we know Paul was at and a church was established, but but there's no letter. Um, You know, we don't have a record of a letter. I mean, there may have been a letter, but in God's purposes, it's not preserved for us. But if there had been a letter, I, I, I want to imagine that it might have said something like this. It's a very short letter. This is Paul writing to the church in Berea. I'm so sorry that I had to leave so quickly, but the brothers were concerned about my safety in view of the mob that had been stirred up by the unbelieving Jews. I hope to be able to return to you soon and continue to labor to see the good news of the gospel transform your life. You have a great attitude toward God's word. Keep being eager to receive God's word and continue to examine, continue to to search the scriptures every day. So that you can mature and be conformed more and more into the image of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, that's the letter that maybe could have been written. um, But I want to tell us now about the letter that is being written today. It's not to the Bereans, but rather it's from the Bereans to us. In a word, this letter is about posture, attitude, bearing, stance, position, our deportment, our posture. And it's not only about our posture or our attitude toward the scriptures and God himself, but it's also about the posture of the scriptures toward us. So really, two main divisions, our posture, attitude toward the scriptures, and the posture of the scriptures toward us. So, look with me at verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Isn't that interesting? Paul is acknowledging ministry is hard. Ministry is difficult. There is suffering in ministry. He's proclaiming the gospel and people don't like it. And who's the majority of people that don't like it? The Jews, of all things. You know, as I was spending time with this, I thought, Saul would have run Paul out of town. Think about that. Who Paul used to be would run Paul, the who Paul is now, out of town. We'll talk about more of that in a bit. So Paul gets to Berea, to the synagogue. What's he doing in the synagogue? Well, you know the pattern. You know his method. He's preaching Christ from the scriptures. 
Back in Acts 13, we saw Paul in Antioch of Pisidia. And and there in this uh, lengthy recorded summary sermon there that Luke uh, preserves for us, he's talking about the grace of God being known in the death and resurrection of Jesus and the offer of forgiveness that leads to freedom. And I want us to turn to Acts 13. Acts 13, beginning in verse 38. It'll be important before we move on. This is how Paul kind of winds down his sermon. Acts 13, 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, that's through Jesus of Nazareth, Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Freedom, freedom. Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, I believe. And remember his his speech on the mall in Washington and its conclusion, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. As important as an oratory in the history of the United States, how much greater is this oratory in that those who trust in Christ are free at last, Not free to sin, free to serve. Not free to go their own way, but free to follow the way of Jesus. We see in chapter 16, he's in Philippi. He's in Thessalonica. And his message is this, Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ of Scripture. And now he's 45 miles south, west, southwest of Thessalonica. He's in a different place, but he's got the same message. Over and over and over again. My friends, may grace and peace never depart from the message of the gospel. There are going to be temptations left, right, and center. But may we stay, by God's grace, steady on course. You know, the same old, same old is life-giving, life-transforming. You know, sometimes I need to just stick my head in a bucket of cold water when I get um, too familiar with the gospel. Oh, may we never become too familiar with the person and work of Jesus in our place and on our behalf. So what's Paul doing? He's preaching Jesus. And who are these people? Who are these Jews in Berea? And, and what are they doing? Uh, notice they are described as being more noble more noble. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Luke or Paul is, is, is basically comparing people and groups. You know, it's not a sin to compare people, right? The, peop- the Jews in here, Berea, are more noble. You know, exceptions prove the rules, don't they? But that's the rule. And what are they doing? They are receiving the word with all eagerness and they are examining the scriptures daily. Who they are determines what they do. Character always precedes and undergirds conduct. 
You cannot overlook character and just focus on contact because as people have said, character is destiny. So what kind of people are they? Well, they're noble people. What does that mean? Well, the original language means open-minded. They are open-minded. <laughs> they're not afraid to consider or actually to reconsider their understanding of Scripture. Uh, one of the things that, that attracted to me to Westminster Theological Seminary was Westminster in its beginning days up to now was not afraid to engage the unbelieving world. They were not an isolated Christian cocoon. They knew that the truth of God, the truth of the scriptures could hold their own weight up against any philosophy out there. And so the, 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 the man that formed Westminster were open-minded in the sense that they wanted to learn and grow and see what scripture really taught. I wonder if they're, as, as they're hearing Paul read, as they're looking at the scriptures, I wonder if they're going, wow, Paul is saying some really different things about this promised Messiah. You see, we thought this promised Messiah was going to sit on David's throne, and we thought he was going to remove Rome from our backs. But Paul is not Proclaiming that, let's take a look at the scriptures. So, let me ask all of us this. Are you open-minded? Are you? Not open-minded to the degree of unbelief and pagan, atheistic, enemy of God stuff, but are you open-minded? Are you willing to go to the scriptures and have your mind changed by scripture, by the Holy Spirit? You've heard me tell this story. It's worth telling again. Uh, years ago, one of the earliest first members of the church, he and I were at the big boy in Covington, and he was facing a decision, and he said, well, this is what scripture says in my best understanding, and this is what a lot of people say scripture says, so I'm, I think I'm okay. And this is what I want to do. And he told me this. He said, well, one of us has to change. What a great line, right? One of us has got to change. We either got to change the scripture or we ourselves have got to change. And what's happening in Berea is people are changing. They're open-minded. You know, I can't help but think that Paul as he's here in Berea, is thinking about Saul on his way to Damascus. Faithful Saul, obedient to the law of God, going to stamp out this, this Jewish sect that's causing all kinds of trouble. Well, how did Paul get an open mind? He met Jesus. And his whole life changed. I mean, how discouraging has it got to be for Paul being hounded, hounded by men who knew the scriptures, hounded by men who were trying to be faithful to God? How discouraging. But yet the gospel was so much more believable and beautiful for Paul that it made that, that suffering insignificant compared to the glory that was in the gospel. Paul 
He abandoned his reliance upon the law and he found Jesus and began to rely on Jesus. And what kind of people are they? They're open-minded and they're people who search the scriptures because, because scripture is a testimony. And Paul doesn't want them to believe just because he said it. He wants them to believe because that's the testimony of Scripture. Isn't that what we want? We don't want our neighbor, our co-worker, our family member to believe just because we said it. We want them to believe because that's the testimony of Scripture. And notice what they're looking for. Examining the Scriptures daily... To see if these things were so. These things. What are these things? What has Paul been proclaiming? The life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, what are they looking for? They're looking for Jesus Christ in the scriptures. And what about these things? They were wanting to see if they were so, if they were true, if they were accurate. They're going to the scriptures, the testimony, and Paul is unfolding it in his teaching. The Christ of the scriptures is Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ of scriptures. It's fulfilled in him. It's where all of God's word points to. It's him. (laughs) I'm always laughing at the thing. Well, show me the evidence that there's no evidence. Think about that. Show me the evidence that there's no evidence. Well, (laughs) Paul doesn't have to do that because it's in God's word. And not only is it in God's word, but he met Jesus. Who humbled him and who called him. To suffer for the sake of the gospel. So here is a great posture to God's word. Open-minded. Eager. Being willing to, to change. You know, because God's word is infallible. God's word is true. God's word is inerrant. But you know, sometimes our interpretation is not. So we've got to be willing to have the word of God change us. What a model they have. You know, Bereans. Uh, most people have heard of the Bereans. Oh yeah, those are the folks who studied the scriptures what, daily. Yes. It's a humble, open-minded attitude. and It's an example. So let me ask you before we move on to this second posture. Uh, what is your posture to God's word? I mean, are you coming to God's word from below? Or rather, are you coming to God's word from above? Are you attempting to use God's word to prove your point? Or rather, are you asking God to show him in his word what point you should have to begin with? Well, in addition to exposing the posture toward the scriptures, our text also exposes the posture or the attitude of the scriptures toward us. Now, where do we see the posture of God's word? Look with me at verse 12. 
Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Many of them therefore believed. The word is at work. Paul writes this to the Corinthian church. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. But now God has opened eyes. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, Paul writes to the church in Rome. So the word, as it were, does its work. Removing blind eyes, removing, er, removing blindness, removing deafness, opening closed minds, ripping out a dead heart and inserting a, a new living heart. That's the posture of God's word changing people's lives, bringing them from death to life. Now, what does God's word say about itself? We, we all know this, right? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, right? Paul writes to Timothy and says, The sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. Amazing, isn't it? He's not saying there's a, a magic to the scriptures. He's saying, no, that this, the message of the scriptures shows you that, that salvation is found in Christ and Christ alone. But he continues that all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable. It's, it's, it's useful. We read that the word of God is, a live, is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And when you see down in verse um, 13, when the crowd comes and they learn, because they learn that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also. The word of God is Paul's way of saying the gospel. And, and Paul would say, what is the gospel? It's the power of God for the salvation of every, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And we see that taking place here to the Jew first and then to the Greek. It's the power of God for salvation to all what? Who believe. Who believe. You see, with the posture or the attitude of God's word toward people, it either softens us or hardens us. Given the fact that the word is described as a sword, a double-edged sword, it's got to be handled with care. Remember... Um, Last week, it was the this side up on the box, right? Here, it's handle with care. Handle with care. And indeed, the word, we, real, we, we find out in Ephesians 6, 17, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, think with me for a moment. The sword of the Spirit is the word. You see, the Holy Spirit works to convict us, to comfort us, to call us. You know, our words matter, and certainly our manner matters. When we speak words of truth, are they words of love also? Because I'm tempted to use this book to hurt people. Are you? I'm tempted to use this book 
to knock people down. Are you? You see, throughout history, God's word has been abused and can be abused. I mean, every heresy has some scriptural proof. And you can take one verse and run with it and go completely off the reservation. The word is the sword, not of me, not of you. It's the sword of the spirit. And think about the fact that the spirit knows way more than I do and way more than you do what people need. I have given up. I must admit, I've quit. Well, I can't say I quit because it'll come back, but I really try to convict people of sin sometimes. What a... How how could I ever think that I could convict anyone of sin? That's God's job. I will pray to that end, but I will not sweat and labor to that end. That's God's job. So the word hardens, the word softens, it's got to be handled with care. But here's what we really need to think about now. The word is all about Jesus, okay? Luke 24, post-resurrection, we've talked about it recently, on the road to Emmaus, gathered with the disciples. Jesus is saying, it's all about me. It's all about me. Go back to John 5. Here's Jesus. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The Old Testament message in a word is Jesus. And that's what Paul had discovered and that's what Paul was proclaiming. I remember years ago I was in seminary uh, at, in Philadelphia and I was at a presbytery meeting and it was a long, I don't know, like eight hours on a Saturday. It was long. And I remember being back on campus on Monday talking to a couple of my classmates who were there and about this meeting and it was some controversy. I have no idea what it is was, but it went on for hours and hours. And I remember we, we were kind of remarking over lunch, like there was something missing about that controversy. What was missing was Jesus. Jesus was somehow absent from this controversy. How could that be? The scriptures are all about Jesus. For Paul, it was all about Jesus. You know, for us, we have no excuse. Why? Because we've got the completed canon, right? Our eyes still have to be opened. You know, I, I imagine this, this um, church in Berea, this fledgling new church of Jews coming to faith, some Greeks and prominent women, and there's unity, Right? Unity, unity in Christ, unity in the gospel. Are they going to have differences over secondary matters? Absolutely. But they have unity in Christ and unity in the gospel. And that brings us to this point. And it's a very important quality of scripture. Scripture is inerrant. Scripture is infallible. 
Scripture is also perspicuous. What, hey kids, vocabulary word for today, perspicuity, wait, perspicuity, excuse me, perspicuity, clarity and lucidity. Our confession of faith, chapter one, awesome theological writing. Section seven says this, all things in scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or another that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. I encourage you to read that section again and again. It will help you tremendously. Why? Because some things in Scripture are hard to understand. Remember Peter in chapter 3 of his second letter, writes that, let me turn to that. Second Peter 3, beginning in verse 18. Well, excuse me, beginning in verse uh, uh, 15. Second Peter, this is what Paul, excuse me, Peter writes. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. So, they're searching the scriptures here in Berea, but you know what? They're going to run up against stuff that's hard to understand. But everywhere they see Jesus and there's unity in Jesus and the gospel. And, and, and not only that, is these Berean Christians will find out that some things in Scripture are more important than other things. In other words, the main thing is the main thing. And the minor things are minor things. I mean, Jesus himself spoke of the weightier matters of the law. What does Jesus mean? Huh. There must be weightier matters of the law and there must be lighter matters of the law. And Jesus, remember, was asked which commandment is the most important of all. You know his answer. He did not pull out of his knapsack 823 laws. No. And we all know the answer. Love God. Love your neighbor. He even combined that into one command. So you can't have one without the other, Jesus is saying. And remember Paul in Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. You see, Paul had to choose what's most important, the death, the resurrection of Jesus you know, Christians have come to different conclusions on any number of matters. Think about baptism. Think about the great fellowship you and I have with our brothers and sisters in Christ who are Baptist, right? Who haven't yet seen that scriptures teach covenant baptism, right? There are brothers and sisters. We disagree about baptism. Hey, narrow it down into the Reformed Presbyterian world. We're going to disagree about any number of things. And that's okay. That's okay. We see dimly now. One day we'll see face to face. 
What's most important? What's of first importance? It's, it's Jesus and the gospel. You know, unity in essential doctrine is, is absolutely important. And the essential doctrine is Christ. You see, at Westminster Seminary, I had some classmates who looked a lot like me and they dressed a lot like me. And they knew theology better than me up one side and down the other. And they could ace a test and I would struggle. But I had real, no, no real relationship with them because we couldn't talk about Jesus. And for the Christian, that's the most important thing. That's why my Nigerian brother in Christ, Yakubu, was one of my best friends. Why? Because we shared Jesus and how Jesus was faithful and Jesus provided. That's Christian fellowship, unity in Christ. We need to wrap up. Those of you that know me know that whenever I'm working in God's word, a song is working in my head also. Yes, yes. And two songs have been running through my head as I studied this text and worked on this message. And the first song came from, the, from May 1987, the Irish supergroup U2. And it was, and I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Is that the case for you? Are you looking for something and haven't found it yet? Well, maybe you're looking in the wrong place. I hope you're looking here. I hope I'm looking here. But maybe you're looking here, but you're looking for the wrong thing. You're looking for a way that you can make it clear that you're right and someone else is wrong. Or you're looking for a way to say this is the only way. Now there are only ways in scripture. Like Jesus is the only way. But one sign of Christian maturity is to be able to distinguish between things. That everything is not a high priority. That there are weightier things and lighter things. There are things of most importance and things of lesser importance. A, a, a growing Christian is able to distinguish between the, the either or and the both and. Paul is saying to the Bereans, look to the scriptures. This is where you'll find Jesus. And God is saying to all of us, look to my word. You'll find Jesus there. And so that's the first song that's been running through my mind. And I still haven't found what I'm looking for because the Jews in Thessalonica, excuse me, in Berea, the noble ones who were eager to study the scriptures, eager to, to compare and see if what Paul was saying was according to scripture. You know what? By God's grace, they found what they were looking for. The Savior. The Christ. And the other song is the one we sang to open up worship. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. I mean, think about Paul in Berea. He, 
He was a changed man. Christ had met him and changed his life. He saw the Old Testament fulfilled in Jesus. And he can write this. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now back to what we sang To this I hold, we sang, my hope is only Jesus, for my life is wholly bound to his. To this I hold, my shepherd will defend me through the deepest valley he will lead. To this I hold, my sin has been defeated. Jesus now and ever is my plea. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus All the glory evermore to him. To this I hold speaks of our confession. That's important. But what's even more important is Jesus saying to those who trust him, I'm holding on to you and will not let you go. So back to the opening questions. Why do you read the Bible? Why do you study the scriptures? To gather knowledge? To ace an exam? To make a point? To win a debate? Why do you read the Bible? What is your primary motivation? To prove you're right? To prove somebody else is wrong? Or is it To see Jesus. Because he's here in the scriptures. Is it to to grow in your knowledge of him. And your love for him. God's word to us today. Is come to Jesus. And find life. Come to him. And find rest. Because my friends. When you and I have been found by Jesus. We have found what we've been looking for all our life. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for preserving this instant, this instance, this situation, this time that the Apostle Paul was in Berea. Thank you for ensuring that it preserved in your word for our good. Oh, Father, may we have the right posture toward you and toward your word, a posture of humility, of eagerness to learn. May we, as we study your word, may we really see from scripture that we were really wicked and sinful so that Jesus had to die for us and yet that we would see in scripture that we are so loved and treasured that Jesus was glad to die for us. Father, we see in scripture that Jesus took your curse so that we could receive your blessing. What an amazing exchange as Jesus is both our substitute and our sacrifice. Oh, Father, may, may your word that we have just heard, may it take up residence in our life and change us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, our suffering Savior, and our risen and reigning Lord. For your glory and for the good of your people now and forever.
Amen.